Welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. We're recording this on a Sunday, and Dad, you had a column out today talking about four big ideas for Arizona, and we're going to talk about a couple of those. We're about a month out from the upcoming uh, new legislative session here in Arizona. Of your four big ideas, three of them were directly related to education. One of them would also impact education. The, one of them was tax reform that we've talked about before, uh, broadening the, the base of sales taxes and lowering uh, the rate so it's more of a consumption tax, as you, as you called it. One of them is, is switching, and this is directly related to, to school funding, uh, switching totally to backpack funding so that no matter uh, changing the, the complicated formula for school funding, um, charter versus district, to pure, if, you, if your kid goes to this school, that school gets this amount of money. Uh, but the two other ones uh, were about education, but weren't weren't related to to funding. And all of our our conversations have uh, focused more about the funding part. Even the education movement here in Arizona has been directly related to funding. But that's not the whole story. And as a teacher, I know that you know a lot of it is about pay, but a lot of it's about the other things too. Uh, and so the two other ideas that you had, one was. Uh, testing reform and, and how we grade schools here uh, is related to testing. So you had an idea to, to change that, uh, simplify a little bit. And then your last one was about the, how we assign college degrees, so going beyond K-12 into, into college degrees. So I want to talk about the two ones that are not about funding, the testing one and the college degree one. And I want to add one that you didn't put in there. You might not want that much, which is char <laughs> charter school reform. That is a lot of discussion, uh, and it, I'm guessing that'll be a, a subject of discussion in the upcoming legislative session. Um, we'll touch on that, too, towards the end. Uh, but let's start out with, with testing reform. Right now, we have uh, a test called AZ Merit. Um, before we get into your big idea, how, why do we use this test right now? It, it, it primarily impacts how schools are graded um, and the emphasis in, in public schools is on getting those AZ merit scores up. Why do we use that? And maybe take us through, you know, how we, how we've gotten to this grade system that we have right now. There's a couple reasons that we have it. One is, is that there is uh, or has been a federal requirement that um, students get tested in some way, shape or form on an annual basis and that the re results be, uh, published, uh, but here in Arizona, there was a belief that you could uh, advance student achievement through some kind of accountability through testing regimen. And I believe that that is the case, but I believe that we have serially um, created uh, the wrong approach and, and an effective one. Um, the way AZ Merit replaced the Ames test, and the Ames test started out uh, by having people involved in Arizona education, uh, significantly teachers, developed an elaborate list of what uh, kids should know at each grade level in a variety of different topics. I mean, these were 
very prescriptive, very detailed. This is the Ames test. Um, and so we created a test to see whether kids had learned that entire litany mm-hmm. uh, of things. Um, that then got replaced by AZ Merit, which was originally um, to measure Common Core, which once again has an elaborate list of things that kids should know in a variety of different topics at each grade level. Uh, we went through a minuet in which we pretended to reject Common Core, but in reality, AZ Merit pretty much uh, uh-huh. tests the Common Core requirements. And then we try to blend a variety of factors and produce a grade for schools. Uh, it hasn't achieved anything except to waste a colossal amount of instruction time and frustrate um, schools and teachers enormously. Uh, We've not been willing to create any consequences for student performance on it. Uh, We are, uh, as I say, blending things that can't be blended to come up with an A, B, C, D, E, uh, RF um, score for schools. Uh, But (laughs) with with the... (laughs) Um, Ames test, there was actually a law that said C should be the average grade Uh for a school. Uh, But the overwhelming majority of our schools were getting A's or B's, Uh uh, which means our test couldn't even pass a math test. So uh, Ames was was the result of a federal requirement. And, uh, it was common. And, and, and partially a, a state initiative. It wasn't entirely, gee, we have to do this to comply with But we, we, accept, we accept money from the federal level, and as a result of that, we have to have some Some, some kind test, of test. Right? It's no longer, and, and, the, and the AZ merit, we don't have to use Common Core now, right? That's not, Correct. that's not part of the federal mandate, but we still need to have some, some testing. But we've, we've opted to create a test, the AZ merit, that's, that's pretty much the same idea of measuring all those. Um, all those standards. And um, I see, I mean, like, like you said, um, a lot of frustration, especially at the lower levels too, when you're, you maybe want to emphasis on, on more of the basics, but there's more complicated standards you have to, um, you have to fill. I've got a philosophical sort of problem with testing. Um, Just, just seeing that you know, out of the skills and learning that you need for success in life, you know, what, what, what comes up on these, on these tests is really just a kind of a small spectrum, you know, of the whole spectrum, you're seeing a, you're seeing a very small sliver of what actually leads to, I think, success and, and all the skills that you need. And some kids aren't, aren't good at these particular things that come up on, you know, filling in these bubbles on, on, on these tests and that, that kind of, kind of wrote, um, thinking. I think it affects test, uh, affects instruction, like what, what teachers are made to do and, 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 and how schedules are formed. I know there's a lot of problems with kids, uh, being in three hour blocks of, of English or math, uh, to try to make up for that. Um, and then another problem is that it's kind of like socioeconomically predictive, right? So like, uh, rich, uh, you know, rich, rich 
families and, 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 and kids usually score well on those. And you can almost predict just based on the test scores, someone's socioeconomic. Yeah. You, you and I, um, I would have a philosophical disagreement about the appropriateness of accountability through a, a testing uh, regimen. Um, I, I believe if, if there are billions of taxpayer dollars being spent, uh, there needs to be objective ways of determining um, whether taxpayers are getting uh, what uh, they hope to get uh, from that investment. Uh, but um, I, I think my alternative would be less irritating <laughs> okay, and, and, so, and less offensive philosophically. So that, that, that's what it is right now. I think there's a lot of emphasis on that. There's a lot of reasons to have problems with the current uh, the current testing system that, that we have. What is, uh, what is your new idea? How would you reform your big idea for changing uh, the way we grade schools and the way we do testing in schools? I, I would blow up uh, the existing um, testing regimen, uh, and I uh, don't believe it's appropriate to try to give a single-letter grade um, to schools, so I would not actually grade schools. What I think we want to achieve is to ensure that all students acquire um, the basic skills that are the key to all learning at all levels. And there's two of those keys that unlock all other learning, um, literacy and numeracy. Uh, reading comprehension, and basic skills in math. Uh, so I would create a test that was limited to those two items uh, and pitched at a level that wasn't intended to ensure that every kid can get into Harvard, uh, but that every a kid would acquire the basic skills that we would reasonably expect from a high school graduate uh, I look to the GED tests to point the way to what that level is. Then what I think is critical is that these tests have to have consequences for students. Yeah. So I would create benchmarks. Again, just basic skills in those two areas. It shouldn't take more than a half day to administer the kind of test that I envision. But at, say, the third, sixth, and eighth grade levels, um, you would administer this test. Uh, kids who failed it, had a deficiency, would be given intensive remedial instruction during the summer. If they made up their deficit, they would then stay with their class. If not, they would be held behind to acquire uh, that, basic skill, that basic skill that they need. To me, it's just fundamentally unfair to teachers to pass kids on that are incapable of performing at the next level, and it's unfair to students to pass them on without the skills necessary for success. For schools, I would just publish two data points, um, how their students overall do on these tests. And you're right, initially there would be a socioeconomic uh, bias to that particular result. But the second data point would be gains that are made mm -hmm. in the test. And that creates greater opportunity for um, schools that primarily teach 
lower income minority students. And I wouldn't attempt to blend those together, just have those two data points mm -hmm. and let parents make their own judgment about what's the best fit for their kids. You wouldn't grade them at all, because right... I, I, I would not I would not have any grade that's associated with a school because it's impossible to fairly blend those yeah, two. Because because right now on, on the AZ merit for you know I'm I'm familiar, more familiar with the high school formula. It's uh, you know you get some for graduation rates, you get some for growth, you get some for just overall scores, and that that accumulation of that creates. You're great. You're, Agreed. You're, you're, you're great. And, and there's no way to fairly blend those. Right. Uh, the one uh, advantages affluent schools. The other one advantages um, non-affluent schools. I, but they're, they're two separate yeah. things. And and I think that we should just publish the data uh, and let parents make up their own yeah, opinion. I, I definitely think the accountability for the students is huge because I, I see a lot of kids that they don't, they don't care at all. They, you know, they just sit there and don't even try. And I think if you had, you know, even, even at schools that at, get lower great test, test scores, if the kids were at the schools were trying as hard as they could, I guarantee you would get up a lot more than they are right now. So I think that's a huge piece. I think schools try to like Jimmy that manipulate that. Oh, if you do well on this, you'll get that or we'll have, but that's just kind of superficial. But then the other thing I think is huge is, is simplifying the test. Cause you're talking about, you know, right now we've got all these complicated things and like second grade teachers are expected to have these like critical thinking standards and all these like different, different connections. That's very stressful, especially when your kids you're teaching are, are not even at a grade level for, you know, for, for reading. So you're talking about just simplifying the test and just, and giving enormous reading and, and, and at a basic skills mm -hmm. level, because if you have an indifferent student, um, if they have the basic skills of literacy and numeracy, if the spark ever goes off at any point in time in their life, um, they then have the keys yeah. to unlocking all other learning. If they get passed along without that and the spark goes off, well, that is a tough mountain to climb. Yeah, and, I, and if you don't pass that basic thing, you, you're saying your kid's held back. The first thing you do is to provide intensive remedial instruction during the summer. And that would and, be like and, a required thing of like, you don't, you don't get here, you got to show up. Well, or you get held back. It's mm -hmm. the way that, that students that had some kind of basic skill deficiency, we're mm -hmm. not talking about the whole planopy of what's required um, from Common Core or the Arizona Standards. It's just basic skills that are necessary to move on and understand the stuff at the next level. Um, the first op first thing you would do is offer um, intensive remedial, remedial instruction during the summer. Mm -hmm. And to the kid, if you make up the deficiency, um, then you can stay with your class. Yeah. If not, you get held back until you make up that deficiency. And that's a huge thing, too, is, you know, if whatever grade you're teaching, if you've got half the class that has the capability to, to read at a certain level or to be at a certain level, you got half the class that doesn't, that's what we, you know, teachers, we're told, you know, it's, we, get, we get heaped all that responsibility on us because now it's my job to, to do what they call differentiate, which really means 
if I've got a U.S. history class and a government class and an economics class, all of a sudden I've got to make two and three different lessons in the same class because I've got three different levels. And we're told to do that. So it's like I got a class and it's like, okay, you're already teaching three classes that you got to prepare for and grade and all that. But now you got to divide that and do differentiated instruction. So I've got a separate reading for my lower level reading kids. I got a higher level reading for this kids, different ways to assess them. You're basically doubling and tripling the amount of work that teachers need to do, um, you know, to get... As I say, it's funda- the, the current system is fundamentally unfair to teachers. It's unfair to schools to then grade uh, when so much is a result of what has occurred or not occurred in the past. But most importantly, it's fundamentally unfair to the students. Uh, the kids that arrive at high school should be capable of doing high school level work. And we are poorly serving them if we don't ensure that they develop the building blocks and the keys to unlock that learning as they go along. And I believe that the incentive of staying with your class, uh, coupled with intensive remedial instruction, only about the basic skills deficit, um, would be the best investment the state can possibly make. Yeah, and I I think that would... would, uh create more interesting classes too because if, if the only thing you're trying to do is get a kid's reading grade you know reading comprehension up you can do a variety of things you can make it interesting whereas you're if you're trying to hit you know hundreds of standards you, you can't really do that you got to be more mechanized and, and you're forced to do this and it's not interesting to the kids so I, I think I would be able to compromise on my anti-testing <laughs> views you know if you stripped you know if you stripped down the test and made it so uh so basic and i think it would help um at some level from the from the school or or from moving on to have some accountability for the for the kids as well the second uh or the the other thing that's kind of i think is tied into that is you've you've written about college how we how we provide college degrees um right now in arizona you can get a four-year college degree from asu u of a nau and gcu right well except gcu is a private university there's some other private schools but in terms of of a public college degree it's only the three research universities and 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 that kind of creates more pressure i think to, to get a kid at a higher level, maybe maybe creates the expectation that rather than having this basic high school skill set, you need to have even more to get you college ready. And, and so and so, what's your idea for for changing the way we give out college degrees, which I think has a has a downward effect as well on how we educate at the K twelve level. Um, probably um, the most familiar instructive example is California. California has a system of research universities. Uh, They also have a system of state colleges. So the state colleges are less expensive to attend. Uh, There's a less emphasis on the faculty doing research as opposed to teaching. And its primary mission and purpose is to provide as cost-effective as possible a college degree. Um, Arizona only has, in its public college system, research universities. 
they are the most expensive model for the delivery of post-secondary uh, education that we have. And only a minority of students um, will benefit from the enhanced educational experience uh, that a, attending a research university as an undergraduate provides. So uh, to me, we need to focus on developing cost-effective opportunities to get a college degree from a public institution for average Jackson Jills. And I believe we have the infrastructure already in place with our vast array of community colleges. Um, we have a lot of them every place in the state, uh, a lot of them here uh, in the valley. Uh, they have very nice facilities. Uh, they have experienced faculty. Um, right now, they are prohibited by law from offering four-year degrees. So I would simply lift that restriction. And that's just a state law that, that lawmakers could say, oh, let's just change that and allow other, yes. other people to do that. Yeah, allow community colleges mm -hmm. to, to do it. And then let the community colleges um, figure out how to get accredited, um, whether there's degrees that they could offer at a cost-competitive price point. Uh, I think the answer is likely to be yes, particularly on degrees like a general business degree. Yeah. Uh, if your aspiration uh, out of college is to be a middle manager, manager someplace, mm -hmm. you don't need to go to the highly rated um, W.P. Carey Business yeah. School at ASU. If you if you want to be a CEO someday or a high-ranking official at some place, it's important that we have that, mm -hmm. but it shouldn't be the funnel through which everybody has to go. Teaching cer certificates yeah, yeah, yeah. are another one where it yeah. would be very useful if we had a lower-cost alternative. So I think if that restriction was just lifted, we could kind of grow organically a state college system, mm -hmm. not only here in the Valley, but um, in our rural communities, do you really have to leave home in order to yeah. get a general business degree? And you shouldn't have to. I think another benefit of that would be being more accessible uh, to lower income communities. Like in, uh, I teach in South Phoenix and South South Mountain Community College is right there. I think that's very accessible. Uh, and sometimes it's like a big step to like, okay, I'm going to go two years there and then transfer again. Now you're, now you're switching schools. You get a whole, and ASU has a, you know, pretty complicated institutional system to try to navigate and to, to, to get that. It's a big, you know, it's a big thing, big university. And just the, having that accessible at a smaller scale, I think would, would really benefit, especially for, you know, some kids that could come back and, you know, teach at those schools and, and have, like you said, biz, you know, general business degrees to some of them, you know, are working in their own, you know, different, different, different shops. And, and it would, I think it would enormously benefit those kind of communities too. I think there would be a higher comfort level mm -hmm. um, for a lot of students in getting their degree in that kind of an environment. Yeah. Is that a, a, a popular idea? What's, it seems like a not a no brainer to me, but like I, I, probably some political pressure from, from ASU or the universities to keep that from happening, or what? Um, the incumbent 
universities, I think, can generally be counted upon to oppose it, even though um, sometimes they claim uh, not to. Uh, it has um, waxed and waned in terms of popularity. Uh, there have been some efforts to go uh, to try to achieve that. Uh, ordinarily, they have stumbled on the funding question. People think, okay, we, if we're going to provide this offering, we've got to figure out a way to fund it, and it's going to be expensive. And um, the community colleges already have access to the property tax, and they have the ability to charge tuition. Um, so my view is don't worry about the funding part of it. Mm -hmm. Lift the restriction and see if community colleges uh, decide uh, that there are degrees that they could offer um, using existing resources or additional resources that um, can be recaptured yeah. um, through the tuition. That's what I'm saying. Can they provide these degrees at a competitive um, price point? I think the answer is going to be yes, but it costs nothing yeah. to lift the restriction and see what happens. Yeah, I'm all for it. Let's talk about one more reform you did not write about, but a lot of people care about it and have been talking about it, especially with a lot of the, a lot of the reporting about charter schools and a lot of people making money and, and the question of, of accountability and, and, and change. So, uh, and even now, and Republicans came around and started admitting that charter schools needed, needed reform. Even yeah, Doug Ducey later in the campaign said, yeah, we need to make some reforms. Um, is that change in mindset just political pressure, or is, is everyone recognizing, I mean, are, are Republicans just responding to the public pressure that comes from this reporting, or do you think, and, and maybe do you see legitimate problems with um, the way charter schools operate, especially with people making a lot of money off of it? That needs to be changed. I think it's a combination Um the the way in which I think the charter school system should be regarded uh, has just never really been firmly established. And the charter school um, systems themselves deserve some of the blame for this. They're most properly seen as state government contracting out a government function, the education of students. I. Uh, and the state has established a per-pupil price that it's willing to pay for someone to step in and to perform that service. And assuming that that service is performed and performed well, what happens to the money shouldn't be anybody else's business. Um, we don't say that it's our business uh, to look into the internal finances of the contractor that builds a public building or builds a road, government contracts for a whole variety of services. And uh, I think it is beneficial to have the entrepreneurial incentive uh, for people to look at ways that they can create a better way of educa educating kids. Um, so I'm not 
bothered by people making money um, providing this contracted service. Uh, clearly, that is a paradigm for looking at charter schools that has not caught on. Uh, people regard them as public schools differently managed. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the political impetus uh, for reform, whatever that might end up meeting, uh, has uh, taken on a great deal of, of momentum. Yeah, I think maybe the perception is that these entrepreneurs uh, are going in there saying, here's an opportunity for me to make money first, rather than, hey, I'm going to I'm going in this because I have a heart for students and educators and I want to make a high quality thing. I think maybe that's combined, you know, whereas, but, but, whereas but, we want, we want people that but, are, but, but, but when we contract with someone to build a road, we don't say, gee, um, I want this person to truly in, in, mm-hmm. to have this deep commitment to building roads. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we want them to perform the service for which we're willing to pay. But it's, uh, it just feels different, doesn't it? When some, you know, when you, see, when you have these articles about people making, you know, millions of dollars, and I mean, just like the the most recent one that's that's gained traction is, or it's been reported on, is, is Farnsworth selling uh, selling his schools and making, I think, it's thirteen million dollars. Well, and so you see that contrast of like. You but, know, couldn't couldn't you have put more into your schools? And you see this, and you see this one person pocketing we, all this we, money. But, but when, we we don't. There's in most of these stories uh, missing context. Mm-hmm. So the amount that Farnsworth allegedly made um, is calculated uh, by uh, taking what his operation was purchased by minus the debt associated with it. Well, he's been running these schools for 20 years. That's not the full story of the financial picture Mm -hmm. uh, or the way in which you calculate what he's walking away with. Uh, But he he, he has, over the period of time in which he's been running these schools, produced schools which consistently educate 3,000 plus kids um, at a very high level. So what's more important, uh, that he created a system um, that has all these parents and kids saying, this is the best educational opportunity that I can find, uh, and this is where I want my kids, or this is where the kids want to be, and has done that over mm-hmm. a couple decades, or that he's walking around, that at the end of it, he's going to be walking away with some amount of money that's, yeah. that's fairly large. To me, the more significant thing is the creation of the system. And you, and, and you have to, to be a successful school. You have to have students that, especially a charter school, you have to have students that want to go there and parents that want to send your kids there. Yeah, the, so it's the, not like, it's the, not like the you have an advantage. The state didn't pay an extra dime. Uh-huh. I mean, the, the state pays for a year's worth of education of these kids. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't go up or down depending upon what the operator makes. Right. That's what you've paid for. Did you get that? Did mm-hmm. you get 
that amount of, uh, of value uh, for what the state invested. I don't think you can look at bases or the Farnsworth schools and not say, absolutely, mm -hmm. uh, the state got what it paid for. Uh, and if the ability to create a successful business uh, and even at the end of it become rich as a result of it, mm -hmm. motivates people to create those kind of schools, mm -hmm. is that really a bad idea? Is that really something that we should flinch at? Certainly that's the instinct and that's driving this. Now, having said that, I think that there is a case that could be made to require all these charter systems uh, to have independent boards of directors. Um, so uh, you have two checks. You have the independent board of directors, and you have the choice of parents as to whether they want their kids to be in those schools. I think that is um, sufficient to protect the public interest and that doing something like procurement reform, which is the most popular reform idea, subject these charter systems to um, the same requirements uh, to bid out everything. And that seems that, like that the, public from, schools from, from the Democrats. That seems like that's the, that's well, the want. It's, and, it's a, and a lot of and, and a lot of Republicans as well. I mean, to me, that will ensure that you do not get the entrepreneurial energy. Uh, into our school system because who's going to put in the sweat and the imagination to create a successful charter system only to be told you now have to put it the management of it out to bid and you may lose it mm -hmm. um, that's that's not an appropriate check in the contracting out model we we don't tell the uh guy that we hire to build our roads, uh, you've got to um, contract out your accounting and and um, your purchase of equipment and and all of your management functions. We don't. We say, for our money, we want a good road. Mm -hmm. Well, in the charter school system, we should be saying, for our money, we want a year's worth of good education. Mm -hmm. So the farthest you'd be willing to go would be to have the independent boards, and 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 we'll, that would be that would be enough. Do you think to um, keep some of the self dealing? Uh, well, to provide a check on the self dealing. Yeah. I mean, one of the examples is basis. Well, the blocks built basis from scratch uh, with their own educational philosophy, um, and now it has some of the top performing schools in the entire country, all over the state. They've moved out of state. So there is a no-bid contract um, with a company that the blocks have set up um, to manage this whole system, which the blocks created. Without the blocks, it wouldn't exist. Basis on its own has developed a highly independent board of directors, including some of the top business talent that the state of Arizona has ever um, produced. Uh, so there is a group of independent members of the board that oversee what this contract is. Um, to me, that's far more appropriate than saying, okay, what the blocks developed now has to be bid out and someone else can come in and, and take it from them. I just don't think that's the way you 
encourage the development of these major charter systems, mm -hmm. which are producing so much good uh, in the state of Arizona for our education. We do not want to create a disincentive for people of talent uh, and who might want to make some money yeah. uh, from developing these systems. Yeah, I think there's a perception, too, of the anti-school choice folks that these charter schools are only being successful by, by cherry-picking uh, students and, and kind of pushing out those that can't make it or the special ed students. But there's been some uh, some writing and analysis uh, that that shows that that's not true, that uh, I think uh, All Hands had a column that, that looked at the AZ Merit data and said that um, you know kids that transfer from one to the other uh, – that, that the that the benefits are strong and it's not a result of uh, of cherry picking, and that there's also you know charter schools popping up in in areas of need and and uh, low socioeconomic areas that are that are providing. Well, and and to me this is another problem with the way that we look at the situation. We should value the education of each kid individually and if that kid and that kid's parents think that their education uh, is best advanced or their character development is best advanced in a particular charter school um, then that's all for the good uh, we shouldn't say that upper middle class kids uh, count for less uh, when it comes to optimizing their learning environment. Uh, the goal should be to optimize the learning environment for every single kid, mm -hmm. irrespective of his or her socioeconomic status. So we'll leave it there for our discussion of education reforms. Let's finish with a uh, just a couple short reflections on some political leaders we've lost uh, the last few days. Um, here in Arizona, uh, Ed Pastor, and, and nationally, um, President uh, Bush, the, the 41st president. Um, just, just quickly, I'm kind of too young to personally, you know, have formed opinions of, uh, of either of them. I mean, read about them um, as I've grown up a little more, but... Um, just, just uh, let's start with Ed Pastor here in Arizona. For you, what what's his legacy, and what can we learn from from his example? Uh, I've I knew uh, Ed Pastor back when he was a member of the Board of Supervisors, uh, and he exemplified uh, practicing politics the way that it should be practiced, and for the right reasons. Uh, he was a decent, um, jovial uh, individual and leader uh, who got along with everybody and whose commitment was to get the things done that he thought should be done. Uh, he um, checked partisanship and politics at the door uh, and was unfailingly um, civil uh, and um, just a pleasure to be 
with and around. Uh, and uh, in, in many respects, uh, the first President Bush was the same way from a different mm -hmm. party and a different perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, he was uh, driven to public service. Uh, he practiced politics because that's what you had to do to get there to make the decisions. Uh, but once again, um, he was uh, drawn to public service, drawn to getting things done, no ulterior motive, um, no desire to win at the expense of somebody else. Uh, and we have kind of lost that style of leadership mm -hmm. uh, in uh, today's toxic political environment. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we're missing a lot. I mean, I, these are two people that came from entirely different perspectives, um, but easily could have sat down and right. worked things out together. Right. And probably did. Yeah. Well, rest in peace and, and, and two role models of civic, uh, civic leadership and public service. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is the Political Notebook Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Overcast, anywhere that you subscribe or listen to podcasts. Thank you.